When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, a quick thank you to the Final Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. This week, it's all about the lager. Brick Lane Lager is a true premium lager featuring a unique cross-flow filtration that allows the quality ingredients to express themselves fully. Can you see where I'm going with this? It's just like the Final Word. Quality hosts, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, with their unique flow that allows them to fully express themselves twice a week. Anyway, make sure you join Adam and Jeff on the Final Word Patreon page. If you support the show, you could win a slab of Brick Lane goodness. Adam and Jeff will tell you more about it in the show. Head to Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Tell them the Final Word sent you. And remember, you can find everything Final Word related at FinalWordCricket.com. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the Final Word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you This is The Final Word Cricket Podcast. I'm Jeff Lemon. The other person that you'll hear soon is Adam Collins. It's season 10. It's episode 12. It's the middle of July. It's the middle of winter in some places. It's the middle of summer in others on the show today. Uh, Australia, they're in the Caribbean. Uh, on track to get whitewashed, the T20 team, 3-0 down as of today. Uh, Justin Langer says everything is fine uh, about his coaching, uh, not so much about the team. England is in a fair bit of strife with COVID, uh, with county teams being knocked out of games, games being cancelled, uh, the 100 might be in some trouble. England's replacement team, because the original team was COVIDed out, is beating Pakistan because... Porque no los dos, and uh, the chief executive of the ICC has been quietly removed from the organisation. Hmm. Uh, a fair bit going on around the world. We will endeavour to get through it all with some nerd pledge and some other stuff uh, through the next hour or so. First of all, welcome to Adam, who has been spending some time at home. He has. Hello, Jeff. I am. I've also been close contacted out of work this week. I was going to be mm. recording this podcast with you at Merchant Taylor School today. I was going to do it in a couple of shifts while commentating mm. Middlesex Leicestershire, but that wasn't to be because I found out on Saturday night that my name had been reported to the NHS as a, a close contact, which means that I'm at home for the time being. I don't have COVID, I should hasten to add, because I am doing tests all the time to, in order to work. So there was never mm. any real doubt about me um, being fine because I would know about it already but uh, such are the peculiarities of the system at the moment that, uh, I mean, I don't need to prove that I'm fine. Uh, I just need to sit at home until the prescribed date and, and get on with life. So it wasn't a huge issue, I suppose, on, on the weekend here because the, the the sport was extraordinary. I mean, you had mm. the two Wimbledon finals that will be remembered for a long time. We had, you know, for those who are inclined, Tour de France, uh, you know, is, is building to that stage of the competition, lots mm-hmm. of attention there. And we had the England women playing two excellent T20 internationals against India, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And then there's a little thing called the, the final of the Euros, which mm. was just a, a, a gigantic event. I mean, we used the football AFL comparison last week, and, and I think that it's sort of, I thought about that again uh, after we recorded Storytime. It's like it was the grand final 
for everybody in the country in, in, in footy terms, <laughs> but everyone was barracking for the same team and mm. you were following St Kilda. I mean, there was this level of uh, passion, anxiety and everything mm. that went hand in hand with that. And, of course, the way that it ended predictably, I suppose, uh, at the penalty spot, it was just galling and the sort of national mourning that went on yesterday alongside a, a huge dose of national pride I think as well for all the good things that that team were able to achieve and advance the conversation in so many ways and the way they played and that their youth and their enthusiasm and mm. the knowledge that they'll be a good team for years to come and a World Cup next year and all the rest of it but still to lose in penalties that way it was a fairly sort of full-on way to end a brilliant weekend. The uh, the realisation that football was was not coming home but just had come home to visit but then was going away again um to, to, yeah to and, and, and here's the thing about that like i saw you know it, it's an easy it's an easy criticism right it didn't come home thus you know what are you going on about but mm-hmm. two things first of all the song was about euro 96 when football as in the competition was returning mm-hmm. to england it wasn't about england winning euro 96 it was about right. which they didn't by the way it was about the tournament <laughs> uh, coming to england and i suppose all, all the memories of that competition because it was a beauty jonathan lou wrote about this after the 2018 semi-final when, it, when England lost to Croatia in extra time mm-hmm. that in some respects in that tournament football did come home like the idea that the national team was embraced by the public for the first time in a long time in that way and this was the next extension of that this was mm. the team that morphed out of the 2018 lot even younger even easier to like I suppose and um yeah, that, that's why I think the, the if you're trying to mount the case, did football come home, you know, in the context of, of what that song was all about way, way back then, I think it did. But yes, it was nice having that, that moment with Winnie. I kept her up until the first whistle. And of course, England scored in the second minute. Luke Shaw, beautiful finish uh, on the left. And having a photo of Winnie watching the celebration on the screen. At the time, I thought she's going to really appreciate this when she's a bit older, knowing that she was watching England win a final at Wembley. Of course, it wasn't to be, but mm. uh, that's the roller coaster of sport. I suppose it is uh, significant in a in a timeline when there have been an awful lot of footballers who were not very admirable. You've got a collection of footballers who are very admirable, or certainly a, a lot of them in terms of the public speaking they've done, their very public commitment to their ideals rather than just taking the easier option of, of stepping back and being quiet because it, it wouldn't be any fun to be putting your head above the parapet in the UK at the moment when yeah. it comes to topics of race and so on. Absolutely. Race and inequality. I mean, this team, mm. yeah, they're millionaires, but they freely admit that. They acknowledge the fact that they're remunerated ridiculously well for what they do and they try, therefore, to give as much back as they can and, and the way that, yes, the Marcus Rashford missed penalty, yes, the way that it happened, you know, a quarter of an inch the other way, you know, maybe the, the ball deflects um, back towards the goal rather than rather than out and, and, and so it goes and they're leading the shootout having scored their first three and they probably go on and, and win the game of football mm. but the inevitable racist abuse that was going to come his way and the fact that it was you know Rashford mm. and Saka and Sancho and like mm. I think as one were like well fuck we know what's going to happen now and it did and it did and it was disgusting and look it's not you know not not we don't need to add to the response to that but yeah it was fairly predictable and then I love the fact that last night there was, you know, there was such a, a groundswell of support around Rashford, Rashford rather when he when he posted mm. himself on social media, just to reiterate what a, a great human being he is, and missing a penalty in a shootout, disappointing as it is, and scrutinised as it should be for being a, a poor execution at the spot, it doesn't detract from who he is as a person. So, yeah, there was that nice swell of support after what was a yeah, pretty crazy twenty four hours.
it is a truly horrible sporting thing, a penalty shootout, you know, coming down to something that's not really the game. It's kind of something, yeah. it's it's related to the game, but it's not actually playing the game. It reminds me, remember they had the bowl-offs that happened briefly, yeah. you know, when you had to hit the stumps, you know. That, that, I mean, there were blast games early on resolved by bowl-outs. In fact, uh, mm. I think Nick Tuvey, a friend of the show, found one on YouTube that had like 100 views on it. I'm like, this is compelling. In yeah. fact, I might send it to you, Jeff, like watching the psychology of a bowl-off. It's not a million miles away from that is it no. but the difference there being of course that this was in a gym with nobody watching uh, the contrast mm. here 31 million people watch this on television in the UK alone it's the most watched yeah. thing on TV since the funeral of Princess Diana and the most watched sporting event of all time more than the 1966 World Cup final so the one the one in the gym was for a game that got rained off right and they had to go yeah, in, that's indoors right. well, they, they the all were I think yeah, yeah. yeah. but there were, I think there was one in the T- T20 World Cup back in the first one you know seven I, I remember oh, Pakistan yeah, yeah. having a bowl off show to Freedy hitting the stumps and so on. I haven't researched bowl offs ahead of this program, but <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've, I've often thought the penalty shootout should be like a penalty in a game where all of the players are there and you can score on the rebound maybe and like until the ball gets kicked out or something. It would be much more chaotic <laughs> and funny that way. But uh, penalties, they, they, they break everyone's hearts. They're, um, they're completely not very satisfying, but I suppose it still feels good when your team gets one through. Uh, not a huge amount of pressure, thinking of walking from the centre circle to the penalty spot at Wembley. No, less pressure, say, for Australia's uh, men's team in the Caribbean for the T20s. They're in St Lucia. They don't have to move around between games, all five T20s in the same place. They've been smashed in straight sets, 3-0. They've got two to play, so they could get whitewashed by this West Indies team who whose captain is injured. Kyron Pollard hurt his hamstring playing South Africa, and so he's been sitting out. Nicholas Puran, who's you know, still referred to as one of the young, up-and-coming, developing players, he's been captaining, doing his best. He's got very experienced players in the team with him, with Andre Russell and Chris Gale playing, so that probably helps. But they've they've dominated over their West Indies. They've absolutely thumped Australia so far in, in the first three. Yeah, due to the, the time zone and the fact these games are starting, I think, at 1am UK time, I've been mm. sort of relying on scorecards and to an extent relying on reading back through your Guardian blogs, Jeff, to <laughs> have a bit of a feel for what's going on. But it feels as though the batting hasn't clicked and West Indies have all this experience and they've been able to kind of overwhelm Australia. It's interesting. Probably the first 15 overs of the series, Australia were going great. You know, they they were bowling really well. Josh Hazelwood had a blinder. He had he had three for three from or no, two two wickets for three runs from three overs during the first game. Finished up. Got to go to wins. India. Got to go to India. Three for 12 off four overs in that first game. They had you know, West Indies five plus down cheaply. And then Andre Russell came in and did what he does, smashed 50 really quickly. Actually, it was his first 50 in T20 internationals because he's he'd never faced more than 21 balls in a T20 innings for the West Indies because he's hmm. he always comes in late in the piece. He comes in with eight balls left and makes 30, but he'd never got to 50. He had a bunch of 30s and 40s, but, but no 50s. So he got this quick 50, got them to 140, and then Australia were cruising to it, Matthew Wade smashing them all around the place, and then they just had a huge choke, a huge collapse. They needed like four and over 
for the last six overs with like five or six wickets in hand. And they kept hitting catches to the outfield. It was like four and over is less than a runner ball. You can you can just hit that into a gap and, and take a single and you'll be fine. <laughs> you'll, you'll win comfortably. So, and then after that, I guess the next two games, Australia just got bulldozed. They weren't in it. You know, they conceded 196 in the second game and got battered. Then, yeah, the third game tried to bat first and got bowled out for 140 and, and got that run down in no time at all. Chris Gale destroyed them. So, they just it, it, it's been the batting, but that hasn't given them enough to work with bowling-wise as well. Yeah, Chris Gale, 67 from 38 balls at age 42. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is he's still, even now, one of the most mm. imposing openers in, in that form of the game. Let's well, go he's back batting to the first, at first game. drop. They've, they've got, because the West Indies have done this IPL thing where he was doing this in the last two IPL seasons, I think, coming in at number three, where, you know, often there's an early wicket in T20 cricket, so he can just play mm. as an opener then. But he, you know, he's also a kind of reassuring presence, I suppose, but it lets their, it lets the more dashing openers who don't take as long to get going kind of have their go while the field's up and then maybe he can come in after four overs and it doesn't matter where the field is when Gale decides to hit because it just goes out of the ground. In terms of that first T20, going back to that, so it sounds like it was a very similar collapse to the one that occurred in the first T20 at Southampton last year against England when mm. I think they did five and over uh, over the last seven overs and poor old Marcus Stornis was left carrying a can at the end with wickets falling around him and he wasn't yep. able to get the sort of 12 required from the, the final over, something like that. Mm. And also in that series, it's when Josh Hazelwood played his first T20 international for five years. So you right. go back to 20. 14 to 2016, Hazelwood was a, a relatively present member of the T20 squads. He'd be in the team from time to time. And then he went through a phase of his career when he was almost turned into a, a test match only specialist. Mm. He wasn't always in the one day team. You know, his test record spoke for itself. They were managing him, seldom picked in mm. a T20 group. And now with T20 such a focus with two World Cups in two years, he's been reintegrated. No longer is it sort of, I don't know, Billy Stanlake. AJ Ty or, or whatever, these guys who were playing two or three years ago consistently, mm-hmm. now it is Josh Hazelwood there and Mitchell Stark, who we'll, t- we'll come back to in a moment. But Hazelwood's record in, in T20 cricket, it started in that big bash season two years ago when mm-hmm. he was released from test duty at the very end of the summer. They won the title with him being so frugal for the Sixers, goes to England, does it again, likewise last summer. And here we are, mm-hmm. a year on, and it feels to me as though in white ball cricket there's nobody more effective than Hazelwood for Australia. Yeah, that, I mean, that first game particularly, that was him operating at his best because he he because he gets that steepness of bounce, I think. It's hard to know how to attack him. And so in the second match, West Indies made a really specific point of attacking him. They went after him. He ended up going one for 39 or four overs in his second game because uh, they were they were coming down the wicket a lot to him and trying to hit him off his length and then uh, sort of going back as well, trying to affect where he was pitching the ball. And then in the third game, he came up against Gale. And this was fascinating. Gale, because he's taller than anybody else as, as a batter, he... He can stand up tall and pull the ball. So Hazelwood's ball, it's sort of back of a length that's coming up uncomfortably around the armpit or something for a normal player is not that high for Gale and he can just pull it. And so he hit 20 runs off four balls in a row, two over the fence, two to the fence from Hazelwood, just 
demolished him, got him dragged out of the attack, you know, sort of things you just don't normally see. And they had to bring Hazelwood back later and he only ended up bowling three of his overs that day because Gale had been so effective in attacking him. So it really came down to matchups, I guess, where Gale couldn't score off Mitchell Stark really, but he would just destroyed Hazelwood. So yeah, interesting. Right. He was the only player who could handle the bounce, I suppose, because their relative heights. Yeah, I mean, I like that, the idea that, you know, we thought the T20 game had passed Hazelwood by, but his mm. core skill set, excuse the cliche, yeah. is still very bloody good. And yeah. then Mitchell Stark, who we always thought was was best suited to the white ball, certainly that was the case in 50-over cricket in successive World Cups and, mm. you know, the damage he did early on as a T20 bowler. But he has stepped away from the IPL, for example, over recent seasons. Yeah. He spoke about that last week, about it wasn't, I mean, he made a choice for his family and he made a choice for his body and to prioritise you know, playing for Australia as opposed to making a lot of money in domestic T20 cricket. The suggestion mm. there was that when he went around quite a bit in the first T20, I'm not sure how he went last night, it sounds like he went okay against Gale, but yeah. generally speaking, whether you need to keep playing in the IPL and being on the cutting mm. edge, which Hazelwood did briefly, albeit last year for CSK, to be able to do it at international level, whether whether there is a correlation yeah. there about the way the game evolves. Maybe it's just um, like being a bowler in T20 looks like it's a very chastening experience a lot of the time. You know, you get sm- you can bowl really well and get smashed. You can have a, a decent night where you've bowled well and you've gone none for 42 off four. And, and that's, that's maybe not even a bad night if you've bowled at the death. They're like, oh, I only went for 10 and over, not so bad. It, it would be... <laughs> maybe hard to get used to that if you're not doing it regularly you know if, if you haven't been able to shift that sort of mindset that comes off and says oh I, I only went at eight and over tonight you know that's a victory as the bowler so maybe that's partly it it might have just been rust Stark in the first two games I think they were his two most expensive four over analyses in, in T20 cricket for Australia the first two matches and then the third game he was really good he went for one for 17 off four and a, a large part of that was tying down Gale. I, I think Gale remembered how Stark just tore him up at the World Cup semi-final in 2019. That's the last time they would have come up against one another. And Gale looked all at sea that day. He couldn't handle the pace. And Stark wasn't as quick last night, but it looked like whenever Stark came on, Gale just said, oh, I'll just, I'll just block this out. I'll just see this guy off and score off someone else, which he did. So there's two more T20s, then there's mm. – is it, is it three one-day internationals yeah. after that? Yeah, the standard um, Super League bit with three ODIs in Bridgetown, Barbados. So, yeah, but they, they look a, a bit of a, a sort of tired and, and busted outfit at the moment, the Australians. Yeah. And, and, I mean, of course, it's worth remembering that more than half the team who would be in the first choice team aren't there at the mm. moment. So this won't necessarily reflect how they go in the World Cup. And I've seen a bit of this on social media from the Australian camp saying, let's keep this in perspective. It's a tour where we're learning things. The result of the games isn't as important as the lessons we're, we're, we're learning along the way, versions of that. That certainly was the, the message from Justin Langer after one of the losses. Mm-hmm. But perhaps his, his press conference before the series was more instructive, Jeff. So we had a conversation last week that preceded this when mm-hmm. we'd heard from Aaron Finch We'd read what had been in the press the previous weekend about the review that had been done into Langer's coaching style, and we heard about the, the two-day powwow up in the Gold Coast uh, before they went off to the Caribbean for this tour. And then Langer spoke, and, and it seemed not to quite be in the slipstream at all, really, of what we heard from the captain or what we saw reported and briefed out from Cricket Australia. It was, it was not what I was expecting. So here's my read on this. I think that people misinterpreted what Aaron Finch said 
And I think Aaron Finch was trying to be diplomatic in, in the way that he does and trying to, you know, being too analytical about the exact words that players use doesn't always help because they're, they're just trying to get it across a vibe, man. Um, but what Finch actually said was uh, it was good. It was good to get the feedback. JL took the feedback head on and he put his own spin on it. And so people took that to mean that that he took it head on, like he took it on, like he accepted it. Yeah. I think that actually means that he didn't accept it. If, if what you do when you're criticised is justify yourself, that's what putting your own spin on it is. It's saying, oh, this, isn't, this criticism isn't justified because actually I meant to do X, Y and Z. If you've done something wrong, if you need to apologise for something, for instance, you can explain why you did the thing, like that can be useful context, but it's only useful if you also acknowledge that you still did something wrong, that you still need to apologise, for instance. So, yeah. in a case well, And that was it, wasn't it? There, there, was, there was this kind of impression that we got that there was a degree of contrition there, wasn't there? Yeah. Like that, that, he, that he'd attended this two-day camp and kind of broken bread with the players mm-hmm. who may not have been as happy with him as they had been before, like last yeah. summer being the focal point, that they'd acknowledged that last summer in the bio bubbles was bloody hard work, didn't suit Langer's intense personality. They needed some time apart. They, mm-hmm. They'd stepped away from it and now it was happy families and good to go. I mean, again, that, that piece from Pete Lawler that we reflected on last week, that was clearly well-sourced. He'd clearly talked to a lot of people and that was how yeah. it felt things had gotten to after mm-hmm. the, the culture camp, whatever you want to call it. That's what I think made the Langer comments jar. Not quite as much mm. Finch's reflection, but the broader energy around what was coming out of the Australian camp. I mean, they spun that well because we spent a week saying, oh, look, you know, yeah, there were some issues good. with Langer. <laughs> yeah, there were some issues around Langer. They've all gone away for a couple of months and they've come back mm. and they've taken a deep breath and they're good to go. But well, I think what might actually be useful is actually hearing from Langer himself. So there were three questions from Andrew Wu uh, in succession from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age about um, the confronting uh, nature of the feedback, which was the word that uh, Finch used last week, uh, and around whether he might be able to change. Let's drop in a couple of those answers. All this stuff I've heard for the last five months, it's been incredible really because... The only two people who knew of the feedback that I got was myself and Tim Ford. So, you know, it's there's been it was so good to see the boys again. It was great to get back with the team. I hadn't seen them since the the last day of the last test match. And then obviously, as you you guys well know, there's been all sorts of um, speculation or discussion in the media about the job I do with the Australian cricket team. So have we addressed some of those some of those issues? Um, and it was honestly, I left the camp feeling like Superman. Well, I haven't been, I haven't changed much in in twenty odd years of um, of being involved in Australian cricket. Uh, like I say, some of the things I was reading was was a bit um, was a bit confusing, actually. To be honest, and, and it, if I'm completely honest, I, uh, I was really hurt by some of it. Uh, I'm not. Well, maybe I'm being a sook, but you know, I hadn't heard in three years. I hadn't heard from the the chairman, the Cricket Australia board, I hadn't heard from the two CEOs, I hadn't heard from the high-performance managers, I hadn't heard from any of my the people I work with and I certainly hadn't heard from any of the players which had been so widely reported. Not once has have the players or any of those people, in fact, it was the um, feedback I've been given for three years have been, has been overwhelmingly positive of, of the role that we've um that I've been able to play as the coach, but more importantly, where the teams come, and that's what that's what it's about. So, um, you know, I'll take on board, uh, I, just like I guess you guys in the media, you're all aspiring to be 
Richie Benno or Wilbur Smith or Shakespeare or or Mike Coward, you know, I'm sure you're aspiring to be as best you possibly can be. I am, the team is, the players are, and, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So you may pick up from Justin Langer there the, the things that we're referring to, that there was an impression that there'd been a certain amount of resolution or progress. So what he's saying there seems to indicate no progress. It seems to not indicate uh, accepting the idea that there might have been a need for progress, uh, saying, oh, I haven't changed for 20 years and, and I've never had any complaints from anybody in the three years I've been doing the job. Now, we know that that's not true. We know that's not the case because the reporting around it wasn't made up. It's not, it's, it's not that the, there seems to be a desire from Langer to direct attention onto the journalists who wrote the stories. You know, I found your articles confronting. Well, the articles weren't conjured out of thin air. They were written because of the journalists doing their research and talking to people who were involved. So, you know, the, the fact that the sources aren't named doesn't mean that they're not real. And there was a follow-up interview after those pieces, which I think has been forgotten in all of this, when Dan Bredig spoke to Langer. Mm. And Langer, I think he said something like, I am grateful for mm. the articles because it gives me an opportunity now to think about things a little bit. Yeah, he was clearly frustrated that the players, the first interview he did, yep. um, I think that was with Chris Barrett, if I recall correctly, where he was clearly furious that the players had been talking or people around the team had been talking mm-hmm. in an unsolicited way, which had been quoted the sources and all the rest of it. And that frustration was was in Langer's voice at the time. You could see it through the written comments. But then, yeah, with Bredig's interview, it was kind of like, okay, now it's de- dealt with and done. I want to learn from this and so mm. on. But it feels like he's reverted back to the original bit, Jeff. Like, yeah. you know, in that quote we, we, we pulled out there when he, when he sort of talks about the frustration at the only first reading about it in, in the press rather than having heard about it from the players. So that's one point, I suppose, there. And, yeah, and the other about if you get a free kick like that about change... I mean, that, that's a, that's for him, that should have been seen as a free kick, for, I think, anyway. His ability to say, yeah, absolutely. You know, that 20-year thing, he could have spun that perfectly. So, yeah, mm. I've been around for a long time, but you never stop learning. You've, you've always mm. got to keep evolving and changing. But he didn't yeah. want to do that. It's as though he wanted he to... Which like, he sort of say... He, he says that later in the interview where he keeps saying, I, I hope that I leave coaching I'm a novice as a novice until, coach. Yeah, that, that's that. right, yeah. But not actually accepting that there were complaints at all, saying nobody's ever complained to me well i mean maybe they haven't directly to him but they've definitely complained you don't have a review into how you've done your job if there aren't complaints about how you're doing it yeah and i just saw that as a great opportunity and yeah it was a bit of a word salad where he got back to as you're saying that the idea that he is a novice coach and hopes he leaves isn't and all this sort of you know and I, i get what he was saying but to me it felt like well you know he wanted to square up he wanted mm. to set the record straight there'd been a lot of this coverage around this report and he didn't feel particularly flattered by it and he, and he wanted to make it clear that no 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 this is how things work under Justin mm-hmm. Langer and it'll be interesting to see how the players respond to that that was my impression like what what would the players take from that if they heard that excerpt from the press conference how would they interpret that when clearly there has been a, a number of them who've been dissatisfied and have spoken accordingly mm-hmm. when there has been a review when there has been a sense that they got somewhere a couple of weeks ago at the Gold Coast only for it to sort of yeah, seem as though it's been undermined somewhat by the coach at the first time of asking. So I think it's a big watch this space. However, in acknowledging all of that, if Australia win the Ashes this summer, forget about the World Cup, you know, forget about everything else. If they beat England mm-hmm. at home, I'm sure he'll get renewed because that's how Australian cricket works. Yeah, and if they don't, I'm sure he'll get sacked no matter how yeah. good he's been at that's it. That's right. Uh, he could have changed everything. He could have been reborn, you know, an entirely new man. Everything's wonderful, but... 
if it's, you know, 2 1 England. England. Mm, no good. If, if, yeah, if you beat England, good to go. If you don't beat England, you're stuffed. Yep. Simple as yep. that. That's how I see it. <laughs> All right, we're heading towards the break. Let's first play a little game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It is a game that we play with people on the Patreon page. It's a reverse quiz. They quiz us. They support the show. They send us a contribution and they do that not in a round number like you might normally send someone, but a non-round number, a specific number. And it's specific because it relates to cricket. And we have to work out what that means. For instance, Jack Jorgensen, welcome to the show, has sent us $1 and one cent uh, per show. So that means that it refers to 101 in some way. And Jack has sent through a clue as well. You don't have to do that, but he has. Jack says, my pledge refers to a game that I attended in person when ODIs were in their last gasp of dominance, a full crowd with real meaning leading to a major tournament played in what one might describe as oven-like conditions. The object of the pledge had a forgettable first half but dominated the second, a contribution out of the modern T20 playbook, nearly hauling their side to an improbable win. An awesome spectacle from a player who was, if not quite great, at least really quite good on their day. This one fell to you, Adam. 101, with all of that context, uh, I was confident you would get it. What have you come back with? Yeah, I remember this. This was before the 2007 World Cup, of course, Australia were undefeated in 2003. They'd won in 2000 and well, won in 1999. So they're trying to go, you know, mm. back to back to back. And it's this uh, almost like getting the band back together for one last go. You know, Ricky Ponting's mm-hmm. captain again. Glenn McGrath is going to go around again. Remember, he'd retired from Test cricket, mm-hmm. you know, the week before this game at the Wacker. Oh, yeah. But um, he, he'd made a commitment to carry on through to the World Cup. And so it went. But yeah, it was a really good. And played really stri- well in that World Cup. Yeah. Fabulous World Cup, so it was the right call to continue. But yeah, that they it was one of the it was ahead of its time this game I reckon in many respects, and, and it was a good stress test for Australia's bowling uh, before they went to the Caribbean for that tournament. So Australia go big, bat first. It's classic Australia innings of that time. Well, it's big, but in terms of the players that contributed, three forty three for five against New Zealand. Ponting one eleven, Hayden. 117. They put on 200 for the second wicket. How many times mm. did we see that in one day internationals between about 2000 and, and 2008? And Jacob Oram, who will be the uh, the focus of our attention in mm-hmm. this answer, took none for 50 from five. So that meets what Jack said about having a, a bit of a struggle early on. Um, but then you press fast forward to the chase, and in the 28th over, Oram comes in at number six with New Zealand 150 for four. So from that point forward, they need. A bit over eight and over across 22 overs. That's a, that's a very sort of T20 hmm. vibe, isn't it? Yeah, T20 yep. had been around before then, but we're before the first T20 World Cup, which of course takes place you know later on that year. But yeah, then Oram just tees off. I suppose uh, liberated by the fact that they're so far behind in the game. Nothing to lose. Nothing really to lose. He went after Brett Lee, went after Bracken, went after McGrath, went after Mitchell Johnson. Pretty strong bowling lineup. You think mm. about those four at the time. He had Brendan McCullum for company for most of that after Ross Taylor got out. Uh, and Oram kept going. He finished on 101 not out from 72 balls with six sixes and a strike rate of 140. And, and if you put yourself in, in 2007, in, in the 2007 mindset, mm-hmm. that's an extraordinary innings, right? That's like, outrageous. We, 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 that's an outrageous innings compared to yeah. what we uh, used to see then. They fell eight runs short of the target. They still hit 16 from the last over, by the way, off Nathan Bracken, but they, uh, they needed 24 from that and didn't quite get there. Ponting mm-hmm. was still man of the match, though. 
For his 111 from 122 balls, Ponting was still uh, given the uh, given the mug rather than Oram, despite how brilliant he clearly was at the end. Oram is an all-rounder, played 160 uh, one-day internationals, but that was his only century. Mm-hmm. He was probably more effective with the ball, uh, took 173 wickets at, at 29. Yeah, he was one of those fascinating players because he was so big, but then he bowled medium pace so slowly. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just this like yes. tank of a human being, so Carlos Braffitt style, who would just roll up to the crease and then double it down at 117. Yeah, I think I think he reminds me a little bit of Jason Holder in that mm. respect, although Holder is kind of a far more accomplished um, batsman, certainly at test level. But mm. yeah, Oram, he just got into the T20 wave. I thought to myself, maybe he missed out. But looking back at it, you know, he did get in on the IPL with CSK, mm. Mumbai Indians, Rajasthan Royals. So he had a good T20 career and kind of cashed in when he finished playing for New Zealand. But yeah, he never dominated the one day like he did on that hot night in Perth in 2007. He seems like a classic candidate who would have played ICL, that um, rebel <laughs> Indian cricket league where you know where everyone who played got banned. It was like I, I, I'm trying to think of who was popping up in the Brian Lara played it actually, but like you know there was oh, players I mean, like uh, Jimmy Marr and stuff would pop up in yeah, the ICL. Uh, Jason Gillespie, Michael Kasperwitz, mm. uh, Matthew Elliott, I think. Did Ian mm-hmm. Harvey go over there? I mean, I'm probably um, besmirching some of their um, <laughs> reputations here. If I've said your name and you weren't in the ICL, I'm sorry. I'm just categorising a group of players who would have made a lot of money through the IPL had they been five years younger. Ian Harvey is the best example of that. I mean, imagine... Oh, yeah. I mean, Ian Harvey probably still would get a game playing <laughs> domestic T20 cricket around the world. He's coaching Gloucestershire. I mean, yeah. what, better net bowler could you, what better net bowler could you have than Harve preparing for a T20 with all the back-of-the-hand variations and the way he could hit the ball so sweetly across the line? Yeah. Um, what a joy, joyous cricketer he was. He should just just do it just to psych out another team. Just suddenly he's walking out at first drop. Wait, what's this? What's this? That's Ian Harvey's music. Well, they might, well, they might need him. Well, they, I mean, think about it. And we'll come back to this later. But with so much COVID about at the moment in, in English cricket, they're going to mm. be playing the Royal London 50-over Cup alongside the 100. And if the 100 goes, goes the way it might, and we'll go into this in detail, and they need mm-hmm. to pick from the counties to fill up the roster of the 100 teams, well, suddenly a club like Gloucestershire, who don't have a huge academy, don't mm-hmm. have, you know, 40 players on the books there, they might have to find players oh, yeah. from clubland. So why wouldn't, in that scenario, you ask yeah. Ian Harvey to come in at number seven and bowl 10 handy overs and turn the clock Bring back 20 Bring him on. Minutes? It's coming home. It's Ian Harvey's coming home. Um, now, Jack, uh, Nerd Pledge is now brought to you by Brick Lane, uh, our, our primary sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing Community. They make very nice beer. And you, because you're the Nerd Pledge featured on the show, you get to send a case of uh, Brick Lane to someone in Australia. Now, that could be you. Or it could be someone else. That's up to you. That's between you and your deity of choice. We're not going to know. We won't ask. We won't tell. But you can. You can send it wherever you'd like. It will be sent to you. I'm just opening a, a, a sour here. I've got a mango and peach sour. There's a, a range of fruity-inspired uh, beverages for people who aren't so keen on the hops kind of side of things. And, uh, yep, Jack, that will be coming your way in the near future. And Jeff, while you enjoy a sip of that, I'll, I'll note that we had a, a number of photos over the weekend when people were watching sport around the world. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? We were saying earlier with so much sport on that, you know, you end up all night watching from England. I know certainly that was the case with Ash Barty, and that was a wonderful cricket moment. Had, I meant to say this in the intro, but Ash Barty, of course, who played in the inaugural edition 
of the Women's Big Bash League when she was having a gap year from tennis, what turned mm-hmm. out to be a gap year. Uh, and there's so much love and affection for her in the cricket world, not least from uh, Mel Jones, our pal, uh, who managed to go on television on Friday night uh, on the, uh, the England-India T20 and... She wasn't soliciting for a ticket, but she's like, yeah, I've been trying to get a ticket to uh, Wimbledon tomorrow and I just can't seem to conjure one up. And by the end of the broadcast, she had a way in and she was there quite <laughs> prominently positioned basically behind the bowler's arm in, in cricket mm. terms, there with Isha Guha and um, another well, two former guests of the final word who've both done long-form long interviews with us uh, over the journey. Anyway, and then at the end, as Ash Barty's walking from the court, she points at MJ, sort of like in this like sort of lovely mm. moment. Of course, they would have been friends uh, through the, her time in cricket. So, well, MJ uh, yeah, we were all wearing the original flag shirt as well. Yes, um, yes, always, stands, yeah. always was, always will be the, the jumper there. So that was a great moment. Uh, and just on, on the... Uh, on the beers that we uh, have kindly uh, got to now give away from Brick Lane. The process is straightforward. We streamlined it. You don't need to email us with your details. We will simply send the voucher to you, to the email that you have listed with us on the Patreon page. It does mean that if you're a new patron to the show or you're an old patron who who is re-upping their number, because Mm. we're doing this twice a week, there is a pretty decent chance you will end up with a slab of Brick Lane because we'll do one on the weekly show. We do about, mm-hmm. say, five or six on the Storytime show. So maybe a, a two in seven chance that you can get yourself a slab of the beautiful Brick Lane. Uh, Brick Lane a Brewing a Community, great to be involved with what they're doing. You can go and buy it off the tap, the draft version, at the Queen Victoria Market on the weekend. Of course, they're based out in Dandenong South, uh, my part of the world as well. So great to have them part of the show. And Jack, uh, enjoy your slab. Follow them on the socials as well. You can tell them that we sent you all that information's in the show notes uh, break time and then we'll be looking at Ingerland, Ingerland, Ingerland. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Jeff, we were just talking about how much we love giving away the good stuff from Brick Lane. We also love giving you a Bloody good discount on Woodstock Cricket Bats, mm-hmm. a company that we've uh, a family almost more than a company, given the way they they make their bats with care, with great care. Each individual bat is made out in Nottinghamshire. But yes, uh, we have the ability to get you 20% off a new bit of kit and not any bit of kit. The bats that have been rated as the best and the second best in England in the Good Gear Guide in 2021. So if you want a new stick, uh, you can get one thanks to Woodstock giving us this kind discount with the code TFW20. How good's that? Anybody who's been following along closely enough to a, a certain story over the last few decades will know that the wand chooses the wizard. This is this is law. <laughs> There's no way around this. And so this is how it works at Woodstock. You you go to their shop, you walk in, and they look at you and they figure out what kind of cricket bat you need. You may have misconceptions, preconceptions, you 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 may have ideas that have been influenced in the wrong way. They'll just stand there, they'll just look at you for about an hour. They'll just sort of circle you. They're bat technicians and just just get the vibe. They'll just soak you in. And then then they'll start talking to you. Then they'll start asking you about what you want to do with a cricket bat. How do you want to use it? How does it make you feel? How do you want it to make you feel? And gradually over the course of, I want to say, seven or eight days that you spend in the Woodstock <laughs> store, they work out what cricket bat you need to take away with you. And they customise it for you. They make the weight just right. They make the sweet spot just right. They shave it away, one shaving at a time until it's exactly the way you want it to be. And then you go out and plunder runs. That's how it works. That's well summed up. Uh, in practice, you can go to the factory there or go to the showroom for an hour and they go through this all with you, as you say, Jeff. They can make sure that you're getting the right bat for your type of cricket. 
ticket. And if you want to do that from Australia or another part of the world, they'll do that consultation via Zoom as well. So it's not, you don't need to actually be there to, to get the full mm. treatment. And yeah, they've got bats with more weight in the bottom, which are more about T20 and other bats that condense their fattest part, I suppose, in the traditional sweet spot, which is more for your four-day cricket. So lots of options. I mean, in relative terms, they're not crazily expensive cricket bats, which is a good thing and an important thing. Sometimes we see cricket bats that are out there, which you can be kind of priced out of the market if you're a recreational player. Mm. Uh, that's not the case with Woodstock. They have a deep commitment to cricket clubs and they're, they're aligned to a lot of clubs around the country. They did a wonderful rebrand over the winter. They look shit hot. Uh, they look really, really good. So yes, you'll you'll go well, but you'll also have style points when you're walking out there with the new stickers. And Jono there at Knotts is doing a great job. They're growing exponentially at the moment, which is really exciting. Great for us to be associated with them. And as we said before, a 20% discount, really easy at the price bar, I think they call it. All you need to do is pop in TFW20. And if you want any further information about Woodstock, just drop us a note and we'll put you directly in touch with Jono because that's what it's all about, the personal touch. Woodstockcricket.co.uk. Hi, I'm Dave Warner, and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Uh, The second half of the show, and basically, I'm going to need you to fill me in in on the, the details of how this has gone, but it seems like COVID and the UK are having a bad time. Um, It's obviously not as bad as it was last year because more people are vaccinated, so fewer people are suffering the kind of terrible effects of the virus, but it is still happening to people who are not so fortunate. And what that means in cricket terms is that everything is on the table. A lot of things are off the table. Uh, Everything's all over the place. The table's been overturned, perhaps, if we can extend the metaphor out to there. There are Teams pulling out, there are games being cancelled. It's an absolute schmuzzle. It's very different to last year. So first-class cricket started again in England in August 2020, and international cricket around now, actually. It was was July, second week of July 2020, when West Indies started their series against England, albeit very much in that bio-bubble at Southampton, then Manchester, and the next two months it was cricket, cricket, cricket for England as they tried to get as much of the schedule in as they could, but it was in that controlled environment. Mm. And that was when COVID had really dropped. So the lockdown had ended, there there were very... Very few cases compared to what it had been in the first peak, which was April and, and May, and it had dropped off nicely, almost in time for what turned out to be, you know, half a cricket season. This time it's different because as vaccination rates have gone up, we've had more liberties. We can get around and do what we want, which means that those who haven't been vaccinated are picking up the virus. And where this poses a problem for cricket is that a lot of young people are playing cricket professionally who wouldn't yet be receiving the vaccination. So it's unlikely their, their life will be at risk if they get COVID. It's likely they'll have minor symptoms. But once they've got it and the Delta variant, as potent as it is, they're passing it around. So it isn't that hard to understand why we're in a situation now where cases are going up, but hospitalisations aren't going up because vulnerable members of the community, indeed everyone down to about like the age of 40-odd, even me at age 36, I've had my two vaccinations three weeks ago just as a regular punter with no sort of mm. no, no reason to have any um, prior access to the vaccine. So... It's a really unusual time. We're about to go into the 100, a new competition, and the test match summer. India here at the moment, they're not bubbled. They're in the community. Of course, they were here for the World Test Championship final. Well, they were at the football and, they're at, and they're whatnot. Football. Yeah. They, were, they were at Wimbledon, you know, they, you know, as they should be, by the way. I mean, they've, they've served their quarantine. They, they, there's no reason mm. they shouldn't be in the community at the moment. But 
Jeff, as you say, it's now starting to have a real effect on first-class cricket because it isn't just about getting COVID. It's about being track and traced. And this is where it gets really in the weeds a little bit. But to understand mm. it, if you are pinged on the NHS app, which a great many people have, or if you are listed as a contact of somebody who's tested positive like I was, that's it. It's not like you can't debate it. You can't have a COVID mm-hmm. test and get out of it. That's it. You have to isolate. And that's what happened to right. the England men's team last week. There were three cases, I think, but it didn't uh-huh. really matter. It, it, once you are deemed a close contact, that's it. And that's the track and trace system that'll be in place until the 16th of August. After the 16th so of August... What, why, why is the rationale that it's okay to relax the distri- restrictions and have everybody get out and about and it doesn't matter if they spread it, but if you come into contact with it, you have to be isolated. What, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's completely contradictory. Well, there'll be this inconsistency between the nineteenth of July when government policy changes in six days or five days from when you're listening to this to open slather. All restrictions will be lifted. I think the government are trying to wind back their rhetoric on this. By the way, the prime minister was saying yesterday that he hopes that people will still be, sa- you know, savvy enough to wear masks at, at the right times. But you won't be, um, you won't be obliged to wear masks even on the tube, for example which seems crazy, mm. but anyway. Yeah, which is which is a custom-designed virus-spreading environment. Yeah, and of course, people need to get the tube, right? Like, you know, no value judgment. You know, if you need to get the tube, get the tube, right? This isn't about shaming people for getting around to go to work when offices are reopening around the country, just the way it is. But I think that there will still be a culture of mask wearing. It's just that it won't be mandated. But the track and trace mm. lags behind by about a month on this. After the 16th of August, if I understand it correctly, and I'm pretty sure I do, if you're double jabs and you get track and traced, like I did, well, okay you'll need to take a PCR test. But so long as you're not found to be COVID positive, you can carry on in your normal life. So, but Mm -hmm. what about the time between now and August 16? 80% of the hundreds being played in that window from July 21 until Mm. August 21, I think the final is. That is the hundred. And there are squads of 15. Mm -hmm. Now to come back to what's happened yesterday, Derbyshire and Essex was cancelled after one day because there was a case, a PCR test came out positive and thus all 22 players were deemed close contacts, not unreasonably, and, and the game was, was called off. We saw what happened with England. Uh, we saw what happened with Sussex. They lost eight players. Kent had to pretty much put an entire different team on the park this week as well, but they had a bit of time to adapt. Peter Hanscom, mm-hmm. the Middlesex captain, tested positive on Friday, and on Saturday afternoon, the whole Middlesex squad were testing. They got bloody lucky because their previous game was at Cheltenham at the festival, thus no dressing rooms. They were kind of changing in tents, thus right. they weren't indoors. And the benchmark of being a close contact is being inside with someone for 15 minutes. And they never were technically inside with Peter Hanscom for 15 minutes. So oh. a negative test got them off the hook. That's that's also going to be the title of his ghost-written biography that you'll put together, Inside with Peter Hanscom. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was trying to do that the other day when um when Phil Salt was teeing off in the replacements team, the national song, I Should Be in Salt. I was thinking to myself, the old Midnight in Joel Paris, I Should Be in Phil Salt. Hang on, let me... Let me I, yeah, let's go back over this. My, yeah. my epidemiology consultant. <laughs> if, if someone, one player's been pinged in a team and the other 21 players from both sides are close contacts, why can't they still play the game? They're all close contacts. <laughs> Why can't they just carry on and play the match? That's a bit like we've talked about it before, isn't it? The 1988 100 metres final. If you're all on the juice at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I suppose there's there's some logic to that. But no, what I am putting forward, what happens when someone gets close (laughs) to the Seoul Olympics final of COVID? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And there's Carl Lewis in lane four. Um, (laughs) Who is the Ben Johnson of this story? Anyway. 
Mm. What I'm saying, it's a little bit different with county cricket because Kent got ravaged right, but there's the twos, there's the academy, mm. there's the broader mm. squad. They were able yep, to pull together Ian a Harvey. team. There's, there's Ian Harvey if it's at Gloucestershire. You know what I'm trying to say. So if it's mm. the Royal London Cup, which is taking place alongside the 100, yes, it's largely an undermined competition because it's clashing with the 100. Yes, it'll be off-Broadway, mm. but at least if a Royal London Cup team gets ravaged by close contacts in this stretch and you know one player gets it and thus they're all, they're all sacked off for 10 days, then mm. they can probably put a team together. Probably a bit harder with the 100. Squads of 15 players... You know, are they going to literally bring in a replacements team for the Oval Originals if on the 19th of July, two days before their first game, but when everything's open again? I'm sure they'll be careful, but, I mean, I'm super careful as well. I've been testing three, four times a week. I don't have COVID, but I've been written off work this week, and that's you know, that, that's not ideal as a freelancer. But the point I'm making is you, you can do everything right and still be deemed a close contact. Mm. It's almost impossible to control your behaviour to such an extent unless you're bubbled. So there's the 100, which can't be bubbled. You know, it's a, it's a franchise competition with six men's teams and six women's teams. You couldn't put them all in one hotel and play it all in one ground. I don't think that would be yeah. remotely viable. I mean, I, they might have to try it, but that's one side of it. And then what about the test cricket? I mean, let's say a member of Rat Coley's extended squad, albeit, but squad gets it, and 12 of them are, are close contacts. Well, that's it. They can't, they can't recruit additional players, you know, from club cricket to play for India. That's not going to happen. So... I wonder Can't whether... Is, is that illegal? Like, yeah, if you, that. you know, if, if you've got dual citizenship. <laughs> there are, there are, are a lot of people in the UK of Indian extraction who would be happy yeah. to turn well, out. I, mean, I wonder who know, would be eligible. As long as they haven't use. played for England, that's, all, that's, yeah. that's the only thing that doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, who'd be eligible to play for India who's in England at the moment? I don't know. But anyway, the, the thing here is, is that that's scrappy and I wonder whether... Okay. The, one of two things will probably need to happen. The status quo is not sustainable, right? Because something will go wrong. Two test matches, might they have to bubble them? Might they have to send them back to the hotels? I mean, the players mm. would be furious if that happened for all the reasons that we yeah, articulated but, I mean, last for week. The, for the space of two tests, it'd be doable. You know, it could be. Probably means four we- but it probably means four weeks, right? Like we know like they do the, the way into the bubble, they test every day on the way in and mm. they could probably pull it off, but the, no one will be happy about that. And of course, the, you know, the, the fact that it'll mean no crowds when crowds are permitted in every other sporting event in the country mm. with the exception of these two test matches. It, it seems unlikely yeah. to me they'd go down that route. Or does the government need to offer an exemption around mm-hmm. close contacts and track and trace for these players? That might be the mm-hmm. way they get through it. That If you're a close contact, you can do PCR tests every day or some version of testing that yeah. satisfies the NHS and the government that they have taken every precaution. So unless they find a, a solution, because not testing, deleting the app won't work. Because, yeah. you know, that's the thing, isn't it? You just delete the app and you can't get pinged. Well, I don't, you know, I, I didn't get caught, through, caught, so to speak, through the app. I, I was declared a close contact by somebody who has COVID. And mm-hmm. much as it was with the players in, in the Derbyshire-Essex game, they weren't pinged. Right. They, it was just obvious that they were close contacts because they were playing a game yep. of cricket with the infected you, individual the day before. You said that the Kent cricket team had been ravaged by close contacts. In a way, isn't this just carrying on a proud English cricketing tradition? Because Wally Hammond was ravaged by close <laughs> contacts, if I understand the story correctly. <laughs> well, at Gloucestershire as well. I was coming back to the original point about whether Ian Harvey gets a game on the back of Wally Hammond's uh, um, outrageous tour of the Caribbean in 1925-26. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, 
I suppose that's all part of it, isn't it? Now we know more about infectious diseases than we ever have before. Do they just play the tests in hazmat suits? Just let the crowd in and just all, like the suits all that, 22 players in the middle have the hazmats on. Or the, the suit know. that... Remember, Davey Warner put up a photo of himself, didn't he, in the mm. hazmat suit at the IPL. So, and I guess that's the comparison, isn't it? What if we end up in a situation where after a few days of the 100, we have a problem... Mm. I mean, the ECB will do everything in their power to get this competition away, and rightly so. Yeah. But that's going to require some change because, mm. as I say, status quo, they will get yeah. teams will be wiped out via close contacts, and I don't know how they'll replace the players. I mean, I suppose they could go to the counties and say, can we please just have another draft? We need 15 players to be available to come and be in the squad tomorrow at Manchester. We'll but it's like trying anywhere. to sell the thing as the best, the greatest players in the world. And you're like, you, you know, it, it's like Richard Gleeson getting his call up to play for North Ants against the touring yes. Australians from the Minot Counties team. Yes. You know, you, you're, you're rolling out whoever was playing for Stoke Seconds to be in the Northern Superchargers side because no one else is available and then trying to sell it for... And then the mismatch. Well, I imagine, imagine the mismatch between a team that... And again, I'm not... I'm not, I'm not diminishing the the capacity of county professionals that play day in day out but there's one thing to be a county professional and there's another thing to be an international Mm. superstar is coming out to play in the competition i mean that that will be you could see a huge mismatch between players who have their full complement available and those who do have to have to find a way through anyway it's all ahead of us uh, it'll be funny it'll be really it'll be very very funny in a lot of ways but just in terms of the timing the ecb in terms of the timing, like... So unlucky. Fuck me. It, well, it's like, I don't know. It's like, I, I, I've, I'm going to realise my lifelong dream of opening this sauerkraut restaurant in London in like August of 1939. <laughs> you know, I think the trade's going to be roaring. I think, I think Britain is ready for, for bratwurst and sauerkraut. You know? It's like, often an internment I, camp. I've been saving up for 30 years to open this Bratwurst restaurant right in the middle of Trafalgar Square. Things have just calmed down oh. sufficiently after the first scrap. Yeah. Yeah, there is a bit of that to it. So, anyway, watch this space on on what could be a really busy... We said Will McPherson last week. It was a busy week in English cricket. I'll tell you what, the next one could be even busier. Speaking of COVID, Jeff, the India... Sri Lanka white mm-hmm. ball series has been delayed by five days. They were going to start on the 13th, which would have been today, the first of three mm-hmm. one-day internationals and three T20s. Have I got that around the right way? Uh, yes, I think so. Yeah, yep, one yep. day is, as part of the Super League and in the T20s on the back. But they've delayed that by five days because Grant Flower, who's the batting coach for Sri Lanka, when he returned from England, the tour they were at last week, um, he tested mm-hmm. positive with COVID, as did another, another member of their support staff. So that means the whole thing gets shuffled back by about four days and it'll finish on the 29th rather yeah. than the 25th. And to me, Jeff, this actually feels like quite good scheduling, really. I mean, they've, they've shown some flexibility. They've, they're trying to find a way through. And to the credit of India, that's been a pretty consistent theme, I reckon. You look at the way that India well, have been willing to compromise in the last 12 months mm. and find, you know, uh, even looking at the way in which plans changed a number of times with their arrival into Australia last year. I mean, credit to the Indian team for being happy to to change things up to to get these games away. You talked about second 11s for the county stuff. This is the benefit of playing a separate team. They've got the entire test squad in England, sending an entirely separate white ball squad to Sri Lanka, still a very strong squad. But it means that there's not the time pressure on, you know, if, if you were still running things on a completely one squad basis, then 
probably pushing a thing back by a few days runs it into the next tour which runs it into the next tour and so on if you're trying to get your 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 top half dozen players at everything that you're supposed to go to whereas in this case there's actually there is the flexibility because there's nothing else that has to happen within the next week they don't have to be in another country preparing for something else and so that was doable so they've just condensed the the schedule a bit sort of two-day breaks between all of those games and and they'll churn through it as quickly as possible in terms of second 11 sticking with the theme England have been outstanding England's men that is against Pakistan mm. I mean I think we should have expected it too with Saqib Mahmood I watched him bowl in the Roses game back in May and to say this guy is ready to play all forms of international cricket is an understatement he is in peak condition and mm. he went through Pakistan in that first one day or he had two wickets in the first over leg before wicket first ball of the game that was uh, Imam Al-Haq third ball mm-hmm. he nicks off Barbara Azam if you don't mind taking a second slip and away he went uh, picking up four wickets and yeah he was peak of his powers I mean Lewis Gregory bowled beautifully Matt Parkinson got his opportunity and looked really good after being in those bubbles in the subcontinent over the winter and not getting a single game he took a couple of wickets there happy to throw the ball up and, and happy to go for a run so long as he is taking wickets so um, and yes it's the second team and with the bat mm. Phil Salt mentioned him before really impressive half century at Lords in the second one day when Pakistan kind of found their groove it was a, a higher scoring game and I mean John Simpson behind the stumps the Middlesex stumper who is 32 years of age probably thought you know that the ship had sailed and him playing for England mm-hmm. brilliant leg side caught behind off the bowling of Parkinson so yeah it's, it's quite an interesting series to follow and the, after that first ball LBW, Shahin Afridi almost getting a first ball LBW, you know, first ball of the, the corresponding yes. innings as yes, well. Yes, that's right. Just turned down that one. But, yeah, it's been quite fun really to, to be. I suppose it, it's always hard to get away from the Pakistan cliche of the being completely unpredictable, but it, nothing plays into that more than rocking up to a country playing their second team because the first <laughs> team's been wiped out and then getting absolutely <laughs> flogged in the first game. Um, notwithstanding, uh, there are... They're a fascinating team to watch uh, and, and still are. So, yeah, look, I, I don't know what to take out of that except that I think I think everybody's tired, everybody's distracted, no one knows what's happening. We live in a sort of post-reality existence at the moment and so, well, of course that was going to happen because it could, so it did. Yeah, and England needed to win these games. We talked about it with Will last week that they're quite mm-hmm. a way back in, in, uh, in the World uh, Cup Super League and the fact that they've picked up you know, full points so far in this series with one game to come, which is today, is important. And, and I guess it does reinforce, doesn't it, Jeff, that mm-hmm. you know, we, we often talk about Australia A in 94, 95. How can we not? It's such a memorable part of our childhoods. I made a, do- a bloody documentary about it. But, uh, you know, A-teams playing against senior teams can make for some really fascinating cricket. And I wonder whether this sort of reminds us, having seen a lot of them, through COVID mm. times unexpectedly, whether we should consider weaving some A-teams into, especially one-day international cricket. I know they don't get called ODIs, but having a, a bigger presence uh, across, the, across the summer, I think it works quite well. It draws interest, at least. The India-England women's series is coming down to a decider. The last T20 match will decide what the result of the whole series is. England could win it or India could draw it and, and deny England the win, depending how that result goes. So they had a, a thriller, really. It was, it was a bit like the first Australia-West Indies game in that, you know, England absolutely cruising in a run chase in a T20 and then just got brought to their knees. Um, they weren't expecting it. There was a, an unlucky dismissal or two in there and then uh, suddenly the whole thing came crashing down. 
Yeah, Tammy Beaumont in complete cruise control for 58 in, in the chase in the second game. There with the captain, Heather Knight. And I, had the, I had the tennis on one screen and the cricket on the other. A couple of cricket games, actually. One, mm. uh, the Middlesex game on one. Kind of following all three and thinking, oh, well, this is the least interesting of the three things I'm mm-hmm. watching. England are going to cruise this by sort of seven wickets with 12 balls to spare and then the mm-hmm. collapse ensued. There was some pretty sort of sloppy cricket there too, wasn't there? There was the, the excellent run out, which uh, was the end Matt Siver of being Matt run Siver, out. that's one. right, the first one. And then uh, Matty Villiers gets her chance and some sloppy running and uh, getting run out too and that to well, me four run outs four run outs in the innings yeah. and, and two of them were crazy one of them was was yeah a wide where it, it's fumbled by the keeper Risha Gosh and Beaumont looks back and sees the fumble and says yeah we'll have an extra and starts trotting through and, and Siva gets run out coming to the striker's end because brilliant, yeah. the keeper recovers quickly enough retrieves the ball and, and pings the stumps down and then the, the absolute freakish one with the the the, the head of the night dismissal where the ball's driven back down the pitch, uh, the bowler goes across to field it. Deepti Sharma's trying to field it behind Heather Knight's legs because the ball's coming straight back at the non-striker. Knight turns around and almost trips over the bowler and can't get back in the ground and the ball bounces off Deepti Sharma and just happens to ricochet into the stumps. You know, completely unintentional in both senses. Didn't intend to get in the batter's way. Didn't intend to knock the ball onto the stumps, but both happened. It was legit. The bowler was allowed to go for the ball. The batter can decide where they want to stand and if they happen to have someone in their way, that's too bad for them. You know, those two wickets fell quickly, Beaumont and Knight, and then suddenly the whole thing slid to the ground. And you could see Heather was absolutely fuming when that happened. You could see she was just about to kick off, but no, she, she maintained her um, restraint and got off the field. I reckon that you talked about Risha Gosh and that, that run out. Remember that she wasn't playing in uh, the earlier matches because there was a decision mm-hmm. taken that Tanya Bhatia is the best wicketkeeper in the country. Not unreasonably. She kept magnificently in the one days and mm. a test match she was dropped for the in theory the better batter but Rish has been wonderful and I reckon that I'm glad that India won the second game on the back of their fielding because their fielding in the first game which was ultimately decided by Duckworth Lewis because it started raining in the eighth mm. over of India's chase and they'd lost three wickets so they were well behind the rate but their fielding was incredible I mean mm. Radha Yadav might be the best infielder already in women's world cricket she's a freak there at backward point I mean the comparisons to Maxwell and Jadeja are inevitable with her the way she throws herself around and stops runs and pings the stumps down Stay yeah. Rana who's quickly becoming my favourite cricketer in the world at the moment she did some brilliant things as well the way she chases to just you know, turning sort of fours into twos. She's that kind of cricketer. Just not mm-hmm. give up anything. And then the the catch. Diol. Uh, the catch. It's, it's, I mean, it's gone around the world, hasn't it? I mean, the way that she was oh, able to... I watched it about 40 times. I literally watched it on repeat about 40 times. It's that good. Yeah, and I love the fact that, and Hypercourse put this on Twitter yesterday, it made SportsCenter on ESPN last night, and, and as he kind of said, that cricket isn't that complicated when, I mean, you know, sometimes we get worried about how, how complicated cricket is. A brilliant bit of athleticism like that. If you haven't seen it, it's a, right from the sort of T20 classic playbook. You've probably seen it on social media by now, but yep. many to dive and take the catch running back flicking it up going over the boundary line and diving again it was, it was just inch perfect and that was uh, one of three wickets in the second last over of the innings we do see those catches with players hopping out of play and hopping back in but this was full stretch both times yes the recovery the ability to recover to get the second dive in but the thing that got it for me was that her back foot is on the ground outside the boundary And she knows if she touches the ball while that back foot's on the ground at six. And so in a split second before catching the ball the second time, she pulls her back foot up 
it's not sort of pushing off that foot as part of a normal jump. It's getting knowing she has to get that foot off the ground and managing to do it within a couple of centimetres of the ball hitting her fingers. It is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, and Harleen DL is part of this next generation of Indian players coming through, right? So I already talked about Radhiyadav and they're playing under Harman Preet, who's struggling, uh, mm. but also uh, took a blinder of a catch down at Long On in that innings. But also got a couple away in that innings as she well. Did. She yeah. was important because they had this, you know, their crazy start with Shafali Verma smashing 20 off a over from Catherine Brunt and then they kind of fell over when the two openers got out and they started going pretty slowly but Harmanpreet got a couple out of the middle late that just made you think okay maybe she's starting to turn a corner yeah yeah I hope so but the point I was going to make is that I'm probably backing over something I said last week when she's leading that team there is a belief about the way they field that's the best fielding performance I've ever seen from India's women in that first T20 and yes they lost but it was brilliant they were only denied by the fact that Nat Siver had a worldly made a 24 Four ball half century, the equal fastest for England in the format. Amy Jones was just as good for 40 odd. Amy Jones, by the way, I mean, yeah, we know she's a very clever cricketer and beautiful through the offside, but she's developed um, an extra gear through, like, the, the long the long ball through long on a mid wicket is now very much part of her weaponry. So that was mm. exciting to watch those two play and make the better part of 170 or whatever it was, which meant that India, upon losing two early wickets, Shafali Verma out second ball to Catherine Brunt and didn't Brunt let her know about it as well. It's been a great contest those two going up against them mm. in the test matches and the one dayers and you know Brunt wins in the first T20 Verma takes her for 20 runs off one over uh, in the second uh, T20 and I suppose we'll, we'll see the final chapter of that tomorrow in the deciding match which if India win <laughs> they'll pull even on eight points each and we've never had a tied yeah. uh, multi-format points uh, series so yeah it's kind of exciting that no we have we, we had the, the women's ashes in 17 was eight all was it was it eight yeah. all yeah, because England levelled up. That's why Australia. Oh, was so they won. They won it. the final. Because England won the right last two. T- Sorry. So yes. they. So Australia had already already retained that all the language yes. about retaining yes. the trophy, and then England won the last two T twenties and and levelled the series, and so Australia didn't win the series, and uh, they were pissed off about it ever since. Right, you are. Sorry, it's it's funny, yeah. isn't it? I didn't remember it as an even series because Australia had you know yeah. played so well at different times. But yeah, you're right. But still, I, I like the idea that. There's a lot going into it in that final game at Chelmsford to be played on Wednesday mm. night, and it's been an excellent series all round. Yeah, it almost felt deliberate that Shafali Verma hit five fours and five balls off Brunt and then played out a maiden off Sophie Eccles. <laughs> just, just to say, oh, can't score off anyone else. Oh, this is really difficult to score off good bowling. Can't score off good bowling. I'll hit you, though. Um, <laughs> I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, the four run out. Sophia Dunkley got run out as well, and... Uh, it was crazy times. So that'll be coming up. Ireland got rained off against South Africa. They were looking good, Ireland. 195 for four in 40 overs. So they were sort of on track for, a you know, maybe a 280 or something. All going well there and then got rained off. So no result there. Um, their second game, it's probably just started actually at the time of recording. They've probably been playing for half an hour or so. But by the time this show comes out, you'll know what the result was of Game 2. So they're playing these three one-days at Malahide as part of, the again, the World Cup Super League. And it's got a fair bit riding on it. So Ireland are currently ninth, one spot behind automatic qualification. They've won two games so far. They've had Kevin O'Brien, their long-serving champion, retire from 50-over cricket before this series. Mm-hmm. He's still available for the 20-over stuff, but at age 36 or maybe even 37, uh, he's pulled the pin on his 50-over career. But they've brought back William Porterfield, who's also part of the golden generation. He's probably, mm. what's Porterfield now, 35, 36. Um, he made 63 opening the batting. The captain, the yeah. new captain, Andy Balburney, made 65 uh, batting down at number four. But it's a pretty decent attack. Rabada, Ngidi, Maharaj, Shamsi, Pelikwayo, they're, they're all playing. I mean, it's not as though South Africa have sent out a 
a second string attack and they can't afford mm. to do so either because under the captaincy of Bavuma, Markram's there, Rassi's there, Miller's there. I mean, they've only won one game so far mm. in the Super League. Now, they've only played four games, but they're down in 11th spot. They've had a series against Sri Lanka postponed, a series against England postponed. Australia aren't having them out this year. Now, this is a broader story about the relationship between the Proteas and Australia, but Australia were meant to have them out for the three one-dayers this coming summer. Due to COVID, they've delayed that, which didn't quite make sense to me. Maybe it was the congested schedule, and maybe they'll they'll get them in um, next year when South Africa are in Australia for Test mm. Cricket. But yeah, Catch they're, you they're, on the rebound. Well, they're, they're quite a long way back in the pack, and we don't know mm. what will happen if these World Cup Super League series don't eventually get played. With the World Test Championship, they hypothecated a, a percentage of wins, didn't they? So if you, you know, you got a your percentage points. of wins you actually played. Yeah. So don't, don't even worry about the series you don't play. Well, what, if, what if South Africa don't get to play against England? What if England mm. don't get back down there? I mean, what if COVID's still an issue to the point where, what if the vaccination rate in Australia is, is so bad that the borders are still so challenging that South Africa can't get down next year? I mean, what about Australia's tour against Zimbabwe? It was meant to be last winter, so top end. Mm -hmm. They've not done it this year. They'll probably do it next year. But again, what if they don't? So we need to Mm -hmm. find a a solution to that. So, um, yeah, a slightly interesting one there. But it does mean this series against Ireland because they actually are on the field. They've had one Mm -hmm. game washed out. They'll want to win these last two. And it's interesting that you mentioned Porterfield getting back. That's presumably because the spots opened up because Kevin O'Brien's retired because last year when Ireland played England, Porterfield was in the squad but was left on the bench by new captain Andy Belburney, which was, it felt like a very notable thing that Belburney wanted to give these young up-and-coming players the chance to play against England. And so, you know, one of the most senior and respected Irish players was was running the drinks uh, back in the side there. The last thing we're looking at today, the ICC chief executive um, who's been quietly managed out of a job. So this gets confusing when you're dealing with the ICC and this the, the chief executives and the chairs and you've got those from the different national boards and then you've got the ICC ones. But Manu Sawney was the CEO of the ICC for the last couple of years. He got put on leave, on gardening leave in February while there was a review into workplace culture. Uh, that was the, the sort of way it was presented publicly. And then he's um, very quietly left the organisation, was sort of the phrasing of it, this week. So Jeff Allardyce is the acting CEO and has been since February and will keep doing that job until someone else gets appointed. But this is a it's a curious one. There are a lot of strands to this story. Yeah, there is. Look, at the power politics of the ICC, the executive on one hand, the board on the other, and the composition of the board, the power of the big three. I mean, you put it all together in a big soup, Jeff, and I mean, mm. I don't profess to know every part of this story, but I'd like to learn more. Uh, And I suspect now that they've made this decision, this permanent decision to move him on, that usually it's around this time of the news cycle that you start to get all of the information and that'll be fascinating to read in the coming weeks. Yeah, I mean, but we should... We're not experts on the sort of uh, very intricate internal politics here, so perhaps we should be speaking to someone who is over the next few weeks. But a couple of things that stand out to me. So... Manu Sawney was installed just before the 2019 World Cup and he was overlapping with Dave Richardson, who was the CEO then and who stayed on basically to run the World Cup while handing over the job. Manu Sawney was appointed to that job by the then 
chair, if I remember correctly, who was Shashank Manahar, who was an Indian administrator who didn't like the BCCI, had a very fractious relationship with them. So you could sort of, you could imagine that the relationship between the BCCI and Manu Sawney wasn't necessarily destined for greatness. And then you had this ICC politics thing that we talked about on the show some weeks ago or months ago about the different camps that it was splitting into between the chair and the CEO. So Greg Barkley got elected to be the chair of the ICC. He's from New Zealand and he was backing the sort of big three idea that they didn't want to have more ICC tournaments. They wanted to be able to have more bilateral series and so they had more control over when they were playing and so on. And then on the other side, you had Manu Sawney, who was the one who was pushing this idea that there should be an extra ICC tournament to raise extra funding that would then be disseminated to other countries. And he's, Manu Sawney is also the one who brought back the idea that countries other than the big three can bid for world events, which the big three were all opposed to. They were very happy to have the previous system that Australia, England and India will be allocated all of the World Cups on rotation forever because they're the only countries where World Cups should ever be played. And that's no longer the case. And they were apparently very shitty about that. And they were, there were formal protests against that even as recently as February this year from the BCCI just to reiterate that they were not happy that it was going to a bidding process that might let another country that wasn't those three countries bid for an ICC event. So all of those things were brought into place by Manu Sawney, uh, who was then, and then this investigation started in February as well. So I don't know what what the connections are or how things tie together, but there's there's an awful lot going on in terms of who was a fan of who and who was not. And it seems like Manu Sawney had uh, a bunch of people who didn't like his work. And then who knows, I, I, don't, I don't know really what the scope of the review was because it was so euphemistically couched. He, the, the quote from Crick Info was, a number of sources have confirmed that the survey found Sawney's style of functioning was problematic. <laughs> what does that mean? It's, uh, someone's, I find your style of functioning problematic, Adam. Anyway, that's, uh, that, that was apparently the problem. Yeah, a fraction euphemistic there. There's a positive spin here in the short term. Um, it's that Jeff Allardyce is the interim chief executive. Jeff Allardyce notes the show. He's, we've interviewed him in the past. Not on the final word, I don't think, but we've, we've both interviewed him in, in, in different broadcasts and in different uh, written articles and all the rest of it. He's a pretty reasonable, no-nonsense guy, uh, Jeff Allardyce, the former Victorian batsman. He was the brains behind the front foot no ball stuff that eventually got over the line. It's his idea all the way back when, so I like mm-hmm. him. And he used to live with Damien Fleming, a friend of the show, so I, I wonder whether, I wonder whether this might open up just a little okay. window for us on the final word to have a line in to the bloke running the show at Dubai for some mm-hmm. for bits of the game that could require fixing. He might take he might take the attitude that it's a, a short time that he's there. I don't know. Maybe he wants the job long term. I'm not sure. But if he's just there as the interim, mm-hmm. as the caretaker coach, uh, he might want to put in some innovative policy that can leave a bit of a okay. bit of a lasting legacy. So what do we not like about world cricket? Bigger right stumps. Now? Let's have bigger stumps. <laughs> what do they make the stumps? <laughs> Well, whatever it is, though, I feel like it shouldn't be too hard for us to get a line yeah. into Joffa, as he's known. Because, okay. uh, yeah, so he's a very, very reasonable, thoughtful man, Jeff Allardyce. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the stuff that we often complain about on the show, it might be the right time for us to advance those with, yeah. the, uh, uh, to, with the interim chief. I, I say, if you've got an idea about how to improve cricket, jump on the Patreon, let us know. We'll compile it all <laughs> into, into a document. We'll, we will. We'll forward we, it on. You know what? We, we will do that. Why, why don't we? I, I think this is a good idea. I mean, this might take some work, but why don't we draft a letter 
And we can do mm-hmm. this. We can both write a bit. We can both. Yeah. It doesn't have to be sort of a, a grab bag of ideas. We can focus it in on two or three, mm-hmm. explain what we thought in the past and advance to mm-hmm. him that, you know, it might be the, the recalibration of the World Test Championship, for example. Mm-hmm. And let's mm-hmm. see how much strength the executive has compared to the board. We'll, we'll put it to the test. Yeah, maybe we'll ban <laughs> players who raised the bat at 150. Um, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe we can sort out this shot clock thing for um for There the you go, overrates. Or... That's a very good idea. I mean, he, I, I yeah. reckon he'd be exactly Shopper. the kind of thinker. Sort out the overrates, buddy. He, I reckon he'd be exactly the kind of guy who did run cricket ops at the ICC, he, so he would know this back to front. He'd be the kind of cat mm-hmm. who, who would want to fix this. That's, mm-hmm. that's good. Nice place to lead the show, I reckon, Jeff. All right, all right. Well, yep, think it over out there. Let us know. That is... It for today. It's the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Uh, we will return to your ears on the weekend for story time when we will wander through the uh, green and leafy lanes of cricket history in a, a more free form, we, 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 structured we, way. Last week, we a got, very structured show. <laughs> last week, it was pretty loose, and we ended up having a pretty long conversation yeah. around Tinder. Did we? Okay, I think yeah, all we about did. different dating apps and whatever. Yeah, about um, Rudy, Rudy, Dr. Rudy Van Vuren and, um, you know, how how he would have gone on the How apps. he would have gone on the apps in Namibia. But uh, that, that got us thinking again. Actually, I won't, I won't talk about it now because I don't want to overcommit, but I'm hopeful... Okay. I'm hopeful that we can be in your your feeds. We can be in your feeds one more time this week before story time to talk about a development behind the scenes that might enable the final word community to better engage with each other. I'll Mm. leave it at that. Okay. Sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. This has been The Final Word. It's a show on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. They have other shows. You can check them out. It's edited by Dave Collins. It is brought to you by Brick Lane. They make delicious beverages. If you're the kind of person who likes to partake in those beverages, check them out. Send us a photo. Tag in the Brick Lane folks on socials if you want to get their details out of our show notes. People were doing that. I I, I kind of skipped over this point earlier, but Matt from Near the Gabba, who's one of our most dependable Mm. correspondents, he did exactly that. He took a photo of himself enjoying a Brick Lane in the middle middle of winter there in Brisbane and tagged in Brick Lane, and that was lovely. So you can do that too. And as we mentioned earlier... If you sign up to our Patreon right now, or if you're already a patron and want to change your number, I suppose you're in the running for one of two slabs a week and mm. not a very big pool of people to win it against, as it were. Not win. We're not, we're not sort of it's not a it's not a competition. We pick your name at random. But you know what I'm trying to say. You could win ten dollars <laughs> cash. Cash cash. <laughs> Um, what is the secret sound? It's me opening a can of Brick Lane every week. It's the same sound. There is there's no confusion about it. Um, yes, thanks to Woodstock Cricket as well. If you want to get yourself a sweet bat, you can get 20% off it. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want to pay 20% less? That's $20 out of every $100. That's what 20% means. Oh, I mean, and it's not just the bats. It's the kit. It's the pads. It's the gloves. It's the whole caboodle. It's the, it, you can literally say it's the whole kit and caboodle. I think they I make their, they their, their soft, the soft bag they've got there. I think they're, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that is, I've, I've seen it firsthand. I've touched mm-hmm. it. I've touched yeah. it. It's made by like, it's, I can't remember which brand it is now, but it's made by someone quite impressive. I'd had a couple of beers when I touched it. I can't remember what they said. They go, okay. this is made by that brand in Italy. Uh-huh. And I said, that's okay. impressive. I'll say that on the yeah. show. And now I can't remember who makes it. But the point is they make okay. other stuff too. Yeah. But the important thing is that you used the phrase touching the soft bag, which is, you know, which <laughs> I probably time to wind up the uh, show, Jeff. Because <laughs> we're very, you know, we're very puerile on this show. 
More towards the end than the start. It, it is. Um, we'll be back for story time on the weekend. Thank you very much, especially to everyone on the Patreon page. We love you all a great deal because you make it possible to make the show, and without you, it would not exist. Simple as that. Love your faces. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.